and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like garments. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the, the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear the word spoken and, and read in such a way, Father, that it falls upon our ears and falls upon our mind and heart in such a way that it blesses us. How, how great this Word is, Father. How great it is. And we're thankful that You have not only blessed us with it, but that You have, you have uh, ordained that we come together as Your family to hear it and, and to, to, to have it taught to us and to have our minds pressed into it in such a way that it changes us. And not, not just in our, our behavior, Father, but it, it, it changes our attitudes and changes our affections in such a way that it honors you, Father, and shows just how precious your Son Jesus is to us in light of every temptation that we face in this world. And so our prayer, like this text, Father, is for ears that hear and eyes that see. And we ask that you bless us in this time. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you know, the theme for 2012 is the word daily, which goes back to Luke chapter 9, which Kevin read for us during the, uh, the, the communion devotional. And one of the things that Jesus taught his disciples is that if you want to be his disciple, you have to take up your cross, you have to follow him, and you have to do it daily. And if you're not willing to do that, then you cannot be his disciple. And that is, that is where we want to kind of pick up our thought this morning. With what does it mean to be a disciple? Uh, in the month of January, my LTG group, the Life Transformation group that meets on Tuesday mornings, we spent some time reading out of the latter part of Isaiah. Did you know that, that Isaiah 40 through 66 part of that book, the latter part of the book, deals with this very mysterious special servant that is never identified by Isaiah, but is, is very deeply and profoundly described. Uh, who is this mysterious figure? Well, one Sabbath, centuries later, in the town of Nazareth, there's this young carpenter by the name of Jesus who picks up the scroll from Isaiah, opens it up to Isaiah 61, which talks about the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. I am to proclaim good news. I am to release uh, the prisoners, proclaim the year of Jubilee, all of these kinds of things out of this mysterious a uh, special servant of Isaiah section. And after reading that, and everybody in the synagogue is quiet, he says, those words are fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning 
that out of all of these centuries of wondering who that special servant, that, that special servant of God in Isaiah is, is, Jesus is identifying himself as that servant. Now what's really important about that is once you begin to read Isaiah chapter 40 all the way through 66, you begin to see some things that are very special about the nature and the way that Jesus did his ministry how he lived, how he related to people like you and me. When he was facing crisis, when he felt betrayal, when he was facing some kind of a major decision in his life, when he was tempted like you and I are tempted, how did he respond to it? And that's where this text out of Isaiah chapter 50 that Prentice just read for us, where that comes into play this morning. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask three questions about discipleship and how that pertains to Scripture. Now, the very first question we're going to ask this morning is what does a disciple look like? And when you go to Isaiah chapter 50, there's not this exhausted list of, of what a disciple is or does or what he looks like, but there are two things that Isaiah says in this particular chapter. One is he possesses this exceptional tenderness. He possesses this exceptional tenderness. Look at, at, at verse 4. This special servant of God out of Israel sustains the weary. Now, we've already read earlier in, in Isaiah that he's a wonderful counselor. In chapter 42, he is the one who takes this bruised reed that's weakened by this bruise, and he will not break it. The smoldering wick he is not going to snuff out. There is this attractive tenderness about this special servant. The special servant is great with the weary. He's tender and he's wise. And when you feel weak and your strength is flagging and you don't know if you can hang on to the end of that rope any longer... This special servant is not going to throw you overboard. So one of the things we have to ask ourselves as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth is are there people that seek us out to minister to them because they see this kind of grace in us? Do people come and ask us how... You know, how we, how we are able to have this kind of a marriage or this kind of a family or this kind of demeanor or this kind of attitude in life because they see this kind of grace in us. Or when people are struggling, they know that they can come into your presence and talk to you and confess their sins and talk to you about what's going on deep down in their heart that's, that's dark. And they know that they're going to find some kind of tenderness and compassion. Well, there's a second thing, not just the compassion and this exceptional tenderness, but there's also this exceptional strength. What Isaiah says in chapter 50 is this special servant has unusual resolve in his life. Look at verse 5. He does not turn back. In verse 6, there is this beating that involves mocking and spitting. Doesn't sound very nice, does it? Verse 7, he has made his face like flint. The point is, it doesn't matter what this special servant is going to face. He has the strength to do God's will. Now, how does he do that? Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, the one who vindicates me, who is whom? God, right? God is near me. How is it that I'm able to endure the mocking and the spitting and the beating? How is it that I'm not going to draw back from doing God's will? It's because the one who vindicates me, God, is near me. And then verse 9, the sovereign Lord. The one who is sovereign, king of kings, the one who is in charge of everything, that's the one that is near me. The special servant of the Lord has his identity, his understanding, his worldview, so deeply rooted in the presence of God that there's nothing that he faces that's going to cause him to lose his composure. 
There's nothing that daunts him. It doesn't matter if it's criticism or vilification, mocking, a beating. It doesn't matter. He stays the course. Now, again, there's a question to ponder here. Do we ever see these two things in the same person? That exceptional tenderness, that exceptional strength. Do we ever see them in the same person? Do we know people who are both tender and compassionate and strong? You know, very rarely, right? Very rarely do we see... Well, now, we know people who are tender and compassionate. And we know people that have a lot of resolve. They're resolute. They've made their face like flint when it comes to doing the right thing. But we do, do we see both of those in the same person? Compassion with this unbending strength. Again, rarely do we see it. Why? Because it takes the work of God in our lives to bring that about, which leads to a second question. Where does that kind of power come from? The kind of power that changes us where we're not just one or the other, but we're both. We're full of grace, but at the same time, that grace does not make us soft when it comes to being obedient to God's will. Again, we don't have an exhausted list here, but there are two things that stand out in this text. One is this special servant has a knowledge of Scripture. The, the tenderness and that resolve, that resolute nature, comes from listening to the Word of God. So again, we ask that question, what is a disciple? Well, a disciple, as you know, is, is not less than a servant, but he's, but he's more than that. There is this special word that we find in verses 4 and 5. find it a couple of times in the text, which refers to kind of a Hebrew way of referring to a disciple. The word literally means one or ones who are instructed. A disciple is one who gains knowledge from his master. Very important thing. Again, look at verses 4 and 5. The sovereign Lord has given me and what? Say it out loud, church. And what? Instructed tongue in order to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me what? Morning by morning. Wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. Day by day, morning by morning, He is listening to the Word of the Master. Now, now think about this. If Jesus is that special servant of Isaiah chapter 50, which we believe He is because of the way that the New Testament, the Gospels in, in particular, refer to Jesus as that special servant, if He is that special servant of Isaiah 50, then we would expect His life to be immersed with Scripture over and over again in the New Testament. And that's exactly what we find, is it not? Hey, Jesus is always quoting Scripture. He quotes, you may not know this, he, he quotes out of 24 of the 39 books out of the Old Testament. Ten times in the Gospels, he makes an argument based on just one word found in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. Over in Matthew chapter 22, the, the, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection and they want to discredit Jesus because Jesus, quite frankly, is a, is a threat to them. And so they come up to him with this, in their minds, this nonsensical example about a woman who marries her husband and then he dies and then his brother marries the woman and then he dies and so the next brother marries her and then he dies all according to you know the deliberate law. And all in all, she is a widow seven times over to all the brothers in this family. And so here are these Sadducees thinking that they've got Jesus in the corner and they're snickering to themselves. And they go, you know, Jesus, 
I know you're over a barrel. But let me ask you, in the resurrection, with they don't believe, and they start snickering all over again, whose wife will she be? And what is it that Jesus says? He says, you are in error because you do not know the, the what, church? Scriptures. You don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. And then you drop down to verse 32, and he's, he's, he's quoting the Old Testament. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's saying... You don't understand Scripture because if you did, you would understand the power of God and you would know that there is a resurrection because he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham, meaning that Abraham is still around. Now that doesn't come unless you spend a lot of time in God's Word meditating and contemplating and thinking and talking about it and and, and to understand the power. You, You know, I don't want to make a big deal out of this particular aside here. But I don't think that Jesus believed that there was such a thing as these, these red-letter Bibles. Now, uh, let me back off of that just a second. Don't go home and burn your red-letter Bibles. But you know, I, re- I remember the first Bible I ever received, and it was one of those King James from the 1960s. Uh, King James uh, version of the Bible with the red letter there in the New Testament, which was Jesus speaking. And you know what the first thing I read in the Bible was? The red letters. Because I thought that those were more important. That is not Jesus' view of Scripture. Jesus believes that every word that is inspired by God, that makes its way into the Old and, and, and for our time, the New Testament, was first birthed, couched, created, thought in the heart of God in all of eternity. Now one of the, last, the, the least talked about features of Jesus' life, and I think one of the greatest secrets to His greatness is this, this connection to Scripture. Jesus' life was just completely immersed in Scripture. Over in Matthew chapter 5, you know, everybody is wondering because He's giving all of these new interpretations of these old rabbinical interpretations of the Old Testament Scripture. And so there was kind of this rumor floating around that, that maybe this, this, uh, this carpenter-turned-rabbi, this itinerant preacher that's going around and mesmerizing everybody Maybe he is delivering a new revelation. And what is it that Jesus says? He says in the old King James, not a jot or a tittle is going to disappear. Now that's pretty good language because we remember it. A jot, what is a jot? Well, it refers to the yod, which is the smallest Hebrew letter, just like this little check mark up at the top of of, of a line. And then the tittle referred to the smallest part or the stroke of, of a letter. A lot of people think that it's the, the letter Vav, which is, which is just a stroke. And what Jesus, in essence, is saying is that everything, those little strokes, all the way to the biggest words in Hebrews, in Hebrew, in, in Scripture, is, is God-breathed. Jesus had the highest view of Scripture, but it was more than just an intellectual thing for him. He also lived in submission to that Scripture. He did. Whenever Jesus was in a crisis, whenever he was betrayed, whenever he felt like he was being abandoned or threatened or whatever it might be, Jesus always responds with what words? It is written, right? Let's say that together. It is written, which means he goes to the Bible. Jesus doesn't make a move. 
outside of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness of, uh, uh, by God, and He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and at the end of that, He comes face to face with, uh, with Satan. Can you imagine the terror of that moment? Several years ago, I was watching, walking through the Wadi Kelt, which is just west of old Jericho, just uh, west of the, of the Jordan River. And uh, the, the Wadi Kilt, according to uh, church history or church tradition, is where these temptations took place. It's a desolate area. And when you come out on the end of it, there are all of these stones that look like loaves of, of Middle Eastern bread. And I can remember walking in that very ugly, austere, august place and thinking that this is the place where Jesus came face to face with the being who rebelled against God and, and, and whose power was so in, in incredible in temptation that it was through His words that human beings were led into temptation and sin entered into the world. And Jesus, after going without food for 40 days and 40 nights, he comes face to face with Him. Can you imagine the terror in a moment like that? And in those three temptations, Jesus responds with what? It is written. Specifically, believe it or not, from Deuteronomy. And at the end of Matthew in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's this man that steps forward to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls his sword out because he's going to die with Jesus. And he takes a big swing at the guy that's nearest to him, and the guy goes like this, takes his ear off. And what is it that Jesus says? Go get them, boys. Puts that ear back on that guy, the side of that guy's face and heals him. And he tells Peter what? You put your sword away. Put your sword back. Don't you know that I could call 10,000 angels? How would you like to have 10,000 angels at your beck and call? I tell you what, I would plow a, a clean lane through 410. He has the opportunity to call 10,000 angels. These guys, these, you know, the angels in the celestial world are the hombres. I mean, these are the guys that get things done. And Jesus, I could have called 10,000, but Scripture has to be what, church? Fulfilled. Scripture has to be fulfilled. Jesus is God. But he doesn't make a move outside of Scripture. Now, what does that have to do with us? Let me ask you something. When you're in agony, and when you're at the end of your rope, and you can't do anything because your, your mind is reeling because of the pain, because of the despair, the hopelessness, and the darkness. I mean, you've tied that knot at the end of the rope, and you're hanging on, right? And you don't have time to, to respond because your mind's not there. All you can do is react. What is it that comes out of you? Who are you and, 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 and uh, or who you are and, and what you have inside of you comes out at that point. And in every case in Scripture, when Jesus is faced with that kind of a moment, what comes out? It is written. It's hanging on the cross. Every molecule of his being is crushed. 
Everything's unraveling for him in life. He's in agony. And what comes out of his mouth? Psalm 22. But Jesus, you cut Jesus and he bleeds Scripture. He bleeds God's Word. Jesus couldn't handle life without putting Scripture at the core of his life. How about us, Mac? Where do we get our information that forms our life as a disciple? Do we truly live under the authority of Scripture when there is a crisis or a decision or counsel to give? And, 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 and on top of that, we're really against this culture that says, you know what, you have the right to decide what is right and what is wrong. I will say this gently and nicely, but that is as inconsistent for a, a believer, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus as there is. It is inconsistent to say, I love Jesus, but I have a few problems with some of the teachings of the New Testament. Basically, you are saying that you accept Jesus, that you want Jesus, but you are rejecting the basis on which he lived his life. You're not a disciple. I think about it from this angle. What was the original sin of the Garden of Eden? Was it, was it murder? That's the question. Was it murder? No. Was it rape? Was it theft? Or was it not making the Word of God the basis for all of life, all decision-making, overcoming all temptation, and seeing reality clearly? Yes. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you have to accept the full authority of the Word of God in your life. You are either over the Word of God or the Word of God is over you. That's the issue found in Isaiah 50. Look towards the end, verse 11. But now, all of you who light fires and provide yourselves with what? Flaming torches. Go walk in the light of your own fires and of the torches that you have set ablaze. This describes the sin of the 21st century Western world, which is hyper-self-sufficiency. When you find your, your life coming unraveled and it feels like you're, you're living in the dark cave and everything is a mess, don't light up a path by your own fires. You stick with the Word of God. And you move ahead. And each of us is tempted to repeat the original sin, to light our own path, to be our own decider. If you accept Jesus, you have to accept the full Word of God because those two things go together. But let's not stop here. Listen, if, if we were to stop here, the temptation might be for us to think that the Bible is some sort of a magic book that you, know, you just memorize a bunch of Scripture and all of that strength just comes pouring into your life. It's not that way which leads to the final question, how does the Word of God change you? You don't just read it. You have to take in its meaning, which is, the meaning is basically the Gospel. And as that meaning becomes a more an, an, an integral part of your life, it changes you radically. It revolutionizes you. Now, at the heart of Isaiah chapter 50 is verse 6, which is about the, you know, the servant of the Lord's suffering. And he says in verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. He's saying that I, just, I wasn't being spat upon just as I was walking by. They were hitting me in the face and mocking me to my face, and they were spitting in my face. 
And then we read all of those, those, those very things happening to Jesus in Mark chapter 15. He is, he is flogged. He is tortured. He is mocked. They strike Him on the head and they spat upon Him. And then after that, they crucify Him. And then three days later, Jesus is resurrected and He appears on the road uh, to Emmaus with a couple of disciples in Luke chapter 24. And these disciples do not, they're having a conversation about Jesus and they don't recognize that Jesus is with them. And they're sad disciples because they thought that Jesus was the one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that's going to make Israel great again. He's going to take that Roman foot off of our neck and kick him out of the country. And Jesus says, you know what? The reason you're upset is because you don't understand the Scriptures. And from that point on, he begins, starting with Moses and the prophets, talk about that the Messiah had to suffer. Now, before we go, go any further, consider something. These men on the road to uh, Emmaus out of Jerusalem... They, they, were, they were good Jewish men. They're referred to as disciples. They would have considered the Scriptures to be authoritative. They would have considered the Scripture to be God-breathed, that it was the Word of God. For them, that's not the problem. Jesus says the reason that they are downcast and sad is because the impact and the power of the Scriptures has not hit them yet because they don't understand it. And the reason they're not changed is because, is because that kind of of understanding and that kind of meaning of God's Word has not revolutionized them. In verse, 24, uh, uh, verse 26 of Luke 24, he says, Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? And beginning with Moses, all the prophets, He explained to them what was said in all of Scripture concerning Himself. Now, why is that key? Think about understanding the meaning of the cross and all of that suffering as one little part of it. Which is a greater love? A love that suffers for you or a love that suffers nothing at all for you? And it's one thing to know that in all four of the Gospels there's this account of the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus. And to be able to talk about on what day which of these things happened, and to know in your mind intellectually all of the stuff that goes with it along that week leading to the crucifixion and three days later, who was the first disciple to the tomb and who actually first saw Jesus and to know all of that stuff intellectually. But then all of a sudden the meaning of it. What did it cost the God of the Bible to love you? And then all of a sudden, all of those facts become a treasure. It cost God everything. God absorbed your debt into His life through suffering and dying for you. The Gospel is not no grace or cheap grace, but it's, it's costly grace. And when you get that, you're never the same. You become this tender, compassionate, grace-filled person who is resolute like flint to do the will of God in every circumstance. Take 30 seconds to step on your toes.
I, I, don't, I don't know. And, and, and listen, if I'm all wet on this, I'm the first one to confess and to repent and say I'm sorry. But I sometimes wonder if in our own minds as disciples and as Christians of Jesus, we draw a line between what happens in our Bible time opportunities on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and what happens at 10.15 to or 10.30 to 11.30 in here on Sunday mornings. I know there are reasons that you sometimes can't make it to the Bible study times, and I know that there are, you know, some of you were, listen, there are legitimate reasons, that's not what I'm saying. But what I do want us to consider this morning is that are we taking full advantage of every opportunity that we have to fill our minds and our hearts with the Word of God in order that we have ample, ample Word and, 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 and God's inspired Word inside of us to meet every moment, to meet every circumstance, to meet every question that requires counsel, to understand the world around us in such a way that we truly are, like Jesus, immersed in the Word of God that we don't make a move outside of that thing. And quite frankly, some of us need to kind of step it up a little bit when it comes to understanding God's Word that way. The only reason I say that is because I love you. I say it because I love you and I want you to, to, to understand the beauty and the profoundness and the greatness of, of, of God's Word in order that as a disciple you are transformed into the likeness of Jesus in order to bring glory to God in all that you do. Whether it's in the hallways of the high school and you're tempted, it seems like every five minutes with something that, that you know is wrong, but the, the temptation is to try to be popular, to have friends, or to not be teased, or not be mocked, or not to be spat upon, you know, maybe verbally. And so you give in. That's not the Jesus way. The Jesus way is to have that word bouncing around so deeply and profoundly in his being that regardless of the cost to him physically, He was bringing glory to God in the way that he lived, the way that he thought, and the way that he ministered and talked to people. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. I took a minute. I'm sorry. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And I want us to do business with God's Word this morning. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you're not God's child, you need to be. And all you have to do is is look at me and look at some of the other people in here and you'll see blessing after blessing after blessing. It's not an easy life. It's a hard life. But it is a life that is saturated with meaning and purpose and significance. And there is this eternity that wells up inside of you. And if you've not given your life to Jesus this morning, then do so this morning. Or if there are other ways that our church can minister to you, Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to them. Speak to them. Share with them your needs. And you can do it now as we we stand and sing together. I am resolved no longer to linger, drawn by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler.